you ever see, um, I was going to get counting time and go back to youth thought. They didn't give me counting time. They sent me back to youth thought. I was going to ride at the youth thought. The youth thought said they didn't want me no more. You know, so uh, they sent me to a Delta thought. You know, I was uh, 19, 19 to 20. And uh, they sent me to the Delta thought. And uh, kept me in ever since. You know, parole board is constantly denying my parole. You know, for different reasons. Last time they asked me, uh, you know, they come up with way out questions. Like last time they asked me, uh, so you don't like my color, huh? You know, just like that out the blue. You know? So, uh, so it's not that I didn't like his color. You know, I didn't like the establishment, the system in which, uh, where you represent. You know, it's not that I didn't like him personally. I didn't even know him personally, you know. And it's not no, uh, racial thing, you know. Uh, Why did you plead guilty uh, at, during this last period, at, during this last trial? Um, um, so-called burglary? Right. Uh, because, um, I was supposed to get a county time, uh, uh, youth authority, you know, and I would have been doing less of time, so this guy told me to uh, plead guilty to it, you know. At the sentencing trial, what exactly did you tell the court then, in that period? Well, I told the court that, uh, now today I'm not guilty of the offense. I told them that I wasn't guilty, and, uh, I hadn't committed any burglary, you know. But, uh, like the judge told me, he said that, uh, you, you're the kind that uh, we have to uh, get off the street. We can't let you in a society, you know. We can't let you among uh, people, you know. Like, I'm different or something. I'm not people, you know what I'm saying? And uh, he just sentenced me. He gave me what the law prescribes, you know. What, what did your public defender say when this was going down? You know what? He didn't argue that or nothing, man. He just... Uh, Stood there. I mean, you know, they work together. They are all together. And uh, he just stood there, you know. And after after I'm sentenced, he comes to try to make me think that uh, he's all right with me and uh, he's sorry to have But he wouldn't argue what they were doing to me, you know. I mean, what do we care about me spending the rest of my life in prison? You know, he doesn't care about that. And none of them care about it for no. Um, person at all, they, uh, they take you through that system uh, as means to uh, keep you off the street, you know. They have a thing about this, uh, the movement of the people on the street. It's sweating all, all people that they consider radical, you see. So they put me in this supposed to be radical thing. And uh, they don't want you on the street. And they're going to, uh, when they get you in prison, they're going to warehouse you in prison. You're going to be in prison a while, a long while. What is the function of the prison system, especially since you served time at Soledad? What is the function of Soledad? Soledad is a um, very barbaric place, man. Barbaric. Uh, How is it barbaric? 
And those cats, officials, they are, you know, uh, like uh, they make uh, little situations up. I mean, take, so you say you take 1,500 men, you got about uh, 15, Uh, you see, you got about uh, 50 officers to uh, to uh, cover 1,500 men. They have to use a system in which to uh, you know hold these men, uh, cover them, and uh, so they use barbaric uh, tactics. They create situations. They try to make racial things like they like say uh, uh, tell a. Uh, um, Caucasian dude that uh, a brother said something about him or something like that, you know, they uh, create these things, you know, they want uh, static and friction among the inmates in the prison, see, and uh, if they see any brother, any Chicano, or any white dude trying to tell another person and help them to what they're trying to do to them, you know, they isolate them in the hole. They keep them locked up for year after year, you know. And consequence of being locked up, you're going to get denied from the board. That's why brothers been here, white dudes been here uh, 18, 15 years, 10 years, never get out, you see. Because uh, anything that you try to do to... Uh, bring about hum uh, uh, unity among the prisoners. Because you have to be hip to this, to this man, uh, what, what his trip is, what he's doing. You, see, you have to know uh, the way he functions, the way he, the way he uh, creates these different situations. You don't know you're going to constantly be in that rage that he's uh, trying to uh, put out, you know. Do you think the prison system uses inmates in the sense of making them work for a correctional industry, medical program? They have, they have uh, the industry, you know, and they uh, uh, put you out there, you know, make people work for three cent an hour, you know, two cent an hour, you know, you know just to build a uh, power of more, you know. It make them, I mean, it's just a slavery thing, another slavery thing, you know. That's all it is. That's all it is. That's all prison is, is a slave camp. I mean. What happened to the quote slaves we built? Well, you do the rest of the time in prison, or you get killed. I mean, it's simple as that. You know, if you rebuild, you do the rest of the time in prison, or you die. You know, you never get out. People out there should uh, take a closer look at this, you know. What happened on January 13th in Old Wing Recreational Yard? Uh, three blacks were murdered on uh, January 13th. Uh, W.L. Northern and uh, Alvin Miller, who I knew on the street. Uh, another brother named Cleveland Edwards. No.
it was murdered, man. I mean, you like uh, it's supposed to be a fight or something, and um, this guy was supposed to call himself uh, breaking up the fight, but you don't break up no fight by aiming at. I mean, if you shoot, you shoot in the air for a warning or something, you know. And if you shoot, you uh, if you have to shoot a person, you would shoot them in the leg or something. You wouldn't aim at their heart, uh, you know, trying to kill them. You know, you wouldn't do that. This, I mean, the, the guy that did the shooting, he had him. Um, that was Officer Miller, right? Huh? Miller. Yeah, well, Miller had um, had different little hangouts with our prisoners anyway. Like, uh, I think it was in 68, when they uh, burnt the prison down, Miller jumped on a, a Spanish dude in the hall. He was supposed to have been, uh, they get them guys and drugs and stuff in the prisons. They uh, hmm. drug them, you know, keep them drugged up all the time. See, Miller had, um, had, um, Like a Spanish guy was uh, in the hallway, he was supposed to have been uh, drugged. They give our guys drugs and stuff in prison, keep them drugged up where they won't notice that. They give them shock treatments and all that stuff to uh, kill their uh, uh, aggressiveness. That's what the, they say is for to uh, keep them from being aggressive. And uh, while doing this, he was supposed to, Miller was supposed to have stopped a uh, guy from uh, having a uh, well, being supposed to have been high or something. And then he, uh, he seen he couldn't stop the guy. He just jumped on him. And uh, consequently, the uh, prison Consequently, all the prison inmates uh, burned, you know, burned up um, cans and stuff, you know, to show them that uh, they cared for this guy and uh, didn't uh, care about him, uh, didn't appreciate him being uh, beat up and jumped on. And, and uh, Miller was a very racist guy. Mr. Fitzgerald, superintendent at Stonebat Prison, has stated that Miller fired with discretion. First of all, uh, uh, it wasn't but, I'd say, six blacks on that tier. And uh, as the incident supposed to went down, we're out here being on O-Wing, Maxwell, that, uh, Brother W.L. Nolan had got jumped on, you know, in the process he was defending himself. And, uh, he wasn't, but he was the only brother, W.L. and, uh, Alvin Miller and Cleveland Edwards' brothers that, uh, these brothers, Alvin Miller and Cleveland Edwards, was trying to pick Dove up. They ran to pick Dove up, not to get involved in the confrontation. They ran to pick him up to get him to the hospital because he had got shot. And um, 
with him running over there, Miller just reacted and uh, overreacted and shot him, killed him. And uh, see, Fitz Harrison them tell things to the people. To uh, I mean, you only hear their side. You see, they tell things, and, and the public always get the impression that it's the inmates. You see, but it's not the inmates. It's the establishment. It's the system. You see, you only hear their part, and you know they gonna do it like they wanna do it, say what they wanna say. You see, and uh. It's not, uh, it's not no, uh, the only racial problem in the prison is that with the, uh, uh officials perpetuate, you know, the, what they, why, why would they do that? Because, I mean, they have all these guys locked up, man, you know, if they see a guy, say, uh, stand up, you know, being a man, you know, they try, so they, it's not a, a rehabilitation thing, you see, it's a corruption thing, see, they try to kill, you know, their intention is to make you a very passive, you know, weak person, you see, they want you to be passive, you know, they want you to go along and constantly be indoctrinated, you know, like we've been indoctrinated for 40 years, you see, and uh, we, we recognize, you know, our blackness, you see, we recognize, like, like um, when we brothers, a large majority of brothers, we are uh, in solidarity, Viewing, you see, and this alone, you know, gets the officials on you. Anytime they hear Hewitt's name or the Panthers name, you know, they try to, you know, make you a weak person. They're going to drive on you. They're constantly going to drive on you. They're going to start little uh, things that are uh, you agitated and all that there, you know. What is the solution? Senator Donnelly proposed a uh series of things that he considered revolutionary in the prison system in to the point of even saying or taking away most of these guards and putting in people who are at least sensitive to the problems. Well, I feel like this here. All um, blacks, you know, Spanish, white dudes that's politically aware are true revolutionaries. So because uh, we are economic, uh, oppressed people, you know, and um, see, you come in, when you get aware of the why you are in prison, the why you are so-called uh, uh, committed a crime, you know, look at the circumstances. You see blacks out there, Mexicans out there, whites out there, poor whites, that's uh, down. The staff is not trying to help. They talk their job talk and all that, but it's hard to get a job, you see. And uh, who wants to get a, be another slave? And you know, you're not going to get equal, you know, you're not going to get uh, the equal uh, 
quarter of what you're supposed to get. You see, they are, and when you become aware of this, you know, and uh, try to better yourself politically, where you can uh, fight this uh, uh, system. Right. What is the solution? What What is the solution? Truthfully, I feel revolution is all the solution. You know, political though. You know, I'm not uh, talking about. I'm not talking about uh, killing nobody or anything like that, but uh, I feel a political revolution is on the solution. Because I feel that uh, all humans have an obligation to uh, correct uh, this fascist uh, America, you see, all races all human beings have this obligation, you see. That's why we're in solidarity with all oppressed people, you see. Because one race, one ethnic group, cannot start no revolution, political or otherwise, you see. It has to be all people. It's been said by some that Jonathan Jackson is one of the true revolutionary heroes. Would right you go on. along with that? Right on. Right on. People becoming aware that the establishment is hard, uh, refused to negotiate. So they're forced to fight. That was Fleeta Drumgo speaking with David Stevens of KPFK. David Stevens also interviewed George Jackson, whose younger brother Jonathan was killed in San Rafael on August 7th while trying to help three black inmates of San Quentin Prison escape from custody in the Marin County Courthouse. How did you first get originally involved with the court system? What happened with the first crime? The very first? Yeah. It goes back to, uh, well, the first day. The very first day I was in California. I uh, wrecked my father's car. And uh, the people, the beautiful people that, uh, that were involved in the wreck, they didn't call the police. We were selling among ourselves, you know, black people. We were selling it among ourselves. But it just so happened that the uh, pigs came by and saw the accident and, you know, inter intervened, took my name and uh, the address where I was staying. And, uh, well, it started from right there, really. A month later, a couple of months later, I was forced into a juvenile court situation. Uh, excuse me, they, they subpoenaed the, uh, me and my folks. And uh, we had to make explanations. Although the matter had already been settled, the accident had already been settled between the uh, black folks. The uh, establishment had to intervene. And I got a record right there. How old were you then? 15, 14, 14. It's 14. First day I came out. And uh, I think since that time, I haven't been on the street, you know, in one stretch more than about nine months. Well, what about the crime that got you into full of that? What was that about? Simple robbery. Um, um, we were both uh, 
me and uh, the comrade, we're both pretty well confused. We've been uh, vacationing down in Mexico when we just come back, and we were both uh, um, still rather, you know, intoxicated. I was 18 then. And uh, we did something stupid. We drove in a place and took folks' money you know, with my car and everything. Now we were both drunk. You know. It wasn't anything to get excited about. No one was hurt. And uh, all the money, I, I gave the money back. And plus, um, they, I didn't give it back. They took it from me. The, the pigs, when they arrested me, they caught me drunk somewhere. They took the money I had on me, which was uh, twice the amount taken from the robbery. And the robbery is just an expression of, uh, a subconscious expression of uh, disregard for, you know, establishment. I, I was a kid then. Your mother hired a lawyer to help you out on that case. Yes, and he was supposed to explain the situation that I just ran down to you and, uh, and try to get us off. In fact, we gave him enough money to make a deal. That's what he said. He was making a deal for us, you know, with the DA. Our deal was uh, for uh, for both of us to, to confess to a second-degree robbery, simulated robbery, since they never found a gun. And uh, me in particular, the, the people couldn't identify me because I don't believe that I took too much part of in, in, the, in, the, in the actual thing, although I don't remember a whole lot about it. But uh, we made, uh, he, was, he told us that he made a deal with the DA and that they didn't take things like that too serious since no one was hurt. And that uh, because we cooperated and didn't send the court to the expense of trying us, that uh, we'd be given county time. You know? You've been in for 10 years behind that. Oh, well, uh, what happened was we didn't get the county time. We went up for sentencing and they gave us what the law prescribed in the state penitentiary. I've been in prison ever since. First prerequisite when you're young is to confess. Uh, the board demands that. The board, the board requires that. Before you ever consider it for a parole or anything like that, you have to uh, admit your guilt. That's supposed to be the first step towards uh, being broken, what they call re rehabilitation. So, uh, most guys, everybody doesn't, you know, we're not fighting their case, we're not appealing. We'll make some kind of little uh, token confession. You know, it's usually just the first sign of a, well, the first uh, sign of submission, really. And at the time, I was thinking of, I had one to life, at the time, I was thinking about, uh, you know, doing a year, maybe 15 months, 18 months, and going out. But uh, the shocks and strains of uh, prison life, and especially the, you know, the first joint I was committed to, Saturday, then. Uh, the shock and strains of prison life showed me right away that, uh, well, I was, I was convinced when I got found that I would probably do more than 15 months. What about the person who was accomplished in this action? Oh, he's a beautiful brother. I love him. And uh, he's out on the street now. And I think he's doing well. He's a beautiful brother. He's taking part in the, uh, the liberation struggle. I hope to see him one day. Maybe we can work together again. Well, I hit straight <laughs> next time. Prison has almost been an education for you. Mm-hmm. Well, I've read, uh, well, the first four years I read in economics, pure economics. The second four years I read in 
exclusively in uh, military things, you know, guerrilla warfare, multi-tune, Pomeroy. Um, I read Nkrumah's stuff. I read uh, Jop, Vos Nguyen Jop, People's Army, People's War. Uh, I went through the whole gambit, the whole thing, the whole line. And uh, I surmise that if I'd have stayed on the street, I'd, I'd probably be dead right now, humping the ground or, or dope fiend or something like that. The uh, prison was, like you saying, uh, an educational thing for me. The uh, open, overt racism. I mean, this outward, uh, undisguised. What oppression. Year, what year did you get to some of that? What year did you start noticing racism <coughs> at some of that? 1961. 1961. Uh, perhaps a month or so before I got there, my brother just got killed. You know, yeah, well, another brother? Another brother got killed. He was rat pack. The way those things were building in Saudi at the time was that the, um, you, you have one hall, one long hall. And the, the wings, the housing units, uh, branch off of the hall, and uh, the gym, and every other uh, facility in the in the, in the prison, uh, the, you know, the hospital, the the, the educational thing, the, the library, they all branch off of this one long hallway. So in other words, uh, you can live your whole life there in the joint and never go outside, or never have to go outside. You didn't, you never get outside of the building. Uh, you're traversing this long hall, up and down, back and forth. They can lock the doors, lock the gates there, and, and contain all movement. All right, uh, that being the case, whenever we move from wing to wing, off a of wing to gym, off a of wing to mess hall, the police have almost complete control. They can stop you in the hall. The hall's no more than about 12 feet, 13, 14 feet wide. They can stop you in the hall and, and check you down, and, and uh, I'll pull you off. And take you into uh, some little cubicles, little cubicles they have off the hall, and give uh, you a third degree, shake down anything they want. But Can you explain to us exactly what is all of that about? When you say it was racist, how do you mean it was racist? All prisons, all prisons, I'm thinking all prisons in fascist America are built on uh, one premise. That's the break individual. To accustom, to, to accustom an individual, to acclimate an individual's mind to acceptance of restraints. So that uh, when he is finally broken and finally released, he'll be able to uh, live under the restraints placed on him by a, a fascist society. How do they go about breaking prison like that? Well, well I, it's not just thought that, but although thought that could be considered the worst right now. Uh, all prisons use terror. Oh, it's no other way to hold an individual. Oh, well, let's say, let's put it this way. There's no way for a small knot of armed men to hold a huge crowd of armed men. There's no other way besides terror. Fear, you know, uh, threats, uh, terrorism, brutality. The whole thing is, is based on, uh, on fear. How much time did you spend in old wing of maximum security? Uh, you know, the greatest, the greatest uh, uh, portion of my, my, my prison time was spent right here in San Quentin. See, uh, 
When I got the deeds, the first deeds that sent me away from Solidad in 1962, I was sent here to San Quentin. And uh, I did seven straight years here. See, so the time that I spent in O-Wing would be limited to the time that I spent after the, I got, uh, I was charged with the alleged murder of the, the pig down there in the Soledad. That was from uh, January of 1970 to uh, June. I was transferred back to San Quentin. Do you understand that? Do you follow that? I was first committed, you know, and uh, every, when, when, when everyone, everyone is first committed, they, they go to the guidance centers, uh, either Vacaville or Chino. I went to Chino because I was committed from Southern California. From there, you're committed to a certain prison. Uh, uh, one of the main three, you know, Soledad, Folsom, or San Quentin, or perhaps in cases where they figure uh, uh, guys are already, uh, you know, broken, pretty well broken, then they'll send them to an honor joint or to a, a medium security or minimum security joint. Well, I was sent to Soledad because I was young. I was 18, like I say. I think I turned 19 in county jail. So they sent me to Soledad, a place for young, uh, uh, incorrigible, they call us. And uh, from Soledad, I was sent to San Quentin. As a result of uh, the disciplinary, a uh, disciplinary infraction, uh, uh, as a result of uh, an altercation in 1962. But from 1962 to 1969, I was in San Quentin. See, all right. Uh, as a result of an altercation in San Quentin, I was returned to Solidad. What was that altercation? Which one? In San Quentin? Yeah. The 1967 riot. If you read the San Francisco paper, well, any paper in California, you probably read about it. They, I was they tied me into that. I did two years in the adjustment center, you know, from 67 to 69. In 69, they transferred me back to Solidad. Um, Talking about Jonathan Jackson, your brother. Beautiful. What are your feelings about that? I feel proud. I haven't shed a tear. That's what you're talking about. I feel proud of him. And I, uh, right from the beginning, right from the very beginning, right from the very beginning, uh, when we started discussing military things years ago, I conceded the possibility of his death, just as I conceded the possibility of my own. Very likely, very likely that we'll all, oh, it's going to be a lot of funerals. Lot, that, that was just the first of a particular kind of funeral. There's going to be a lot more. And uh, but one other thing I very definitely want to comment, here, comment on here. Uh, um, a white reporter asked me the other day if I thought Johnson was suicidal and if I thought that blacks who attack or make attacks on uh, the established uh, protective agencies, I was asked whether or not these blacks were suicidal. In my opinion, was it a, a self-destructive, uh, frustrated uh, um, striking out at the uh, oppressor? I reminded that uh, reporter, and I'd like to also remind uh, anyone listening here that uh, there's been funerals on both sides. You did? And uh, it's... Uh, that question applies to us. I mean, if anyone can ask us that question, they could also accuse uh, uh, the man who goes down to the police station and signs up to be a pig. They could, they could ask him the same question. Is he suicidal? I don't think that uh, it's fair 
to Jonathan Jackson. I don't think it's fair to William Christmas or to uh, James McLean or Brother McGee. I don't think it's fair at all to uh, try to bury those brothers' examples. Brother McGee survived. And uh, I don't think he'll uh, appreciate it all. The, the black press I'm talking about, and uh, of course we don't expect much from from the media, from the media at large, uh, the media from the outside, the enemy culture. We don't expect much from that. But uh, um, the black tabloids and the uh, um, Underground press. We don't. We don't want these brothers' examples buried with them. Uh, efforts to uh, diminish the Marine battle are uh, called an act of desperation or frustration. I, I don't believe that that's the the proper way to look at it. I believe we're reading the wrong signals from the from the incident. Uh, there wasn't. There wasn't one thing that could stop those brothers from. Uh, from uh, attaining what uh, they started out to do, and that was to kill a judge. I, I think it was well thought out. The mistake was in uh, underestimating the viciousness of uh, the prison guards. If you notice, uh, yeah, the regular, the regular county officers uh, surrendered their arms, and there was there was uh, uh, there wasn't any violence until uh, uh, the brothers, until the comrades ran into opposition from uh, the prison officials, and. Uh, that's where they made their mistakes. Uh, yeah. The prison officials opened fire in complete disregard of the lives of five civilians, five non-combatants, one of them a judge and one a district attorney. The judges uh, from the uh, from the establishment, I, I think they're reading the wrong signals from uh, the incident also. As, uh, as far as I'm concerned, what they should try to pick up from that incident over there is that they've created uh, a force, a uh, so termed or so thought of uh, protective force that's really capable of turning on. The act of uh, firing into that truck in, in, in complete disregard of the lives of five uh, non-combatants, one of them uh, a Superior Court judge, uh, that, that's really frightening. The first shots were fired by the uh, establishment's watchdogs. And uh, to me, it seems that uh, the proper signals, I think, to become alarmed over is the fact that uh, the, the establishment has created a, 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 a force and given guns to, to, to uh, animals that uh, they don't seem to have any restraints at all. That was George San Quentin Prison on August 17th. This has been the fourth in a series of programs on the case of the Soledad Brothers produced by David Stevens of KPFK in Los Angeles. For KPFA, this is Bill Northwood. The Soledad Brothers are George Jackson, John Cluchet, and Fleeta Drumgo, three black men who are charged in connection with the killing last January of a guard at the State Correctional Training Facility at Soledad. The three men were originally to be tried in Monterey County Superior Court, but defense attorneys obtained a change of venue, and the trial of the Soledad brothers is now scheduled to begin in San Francisco County Superior Court on September 21st. While awaiting trial, 
They have been transferred to San Quentin Prison in Marin County, where they are held in B-Wing, separate from all other prisoners. David Stevens, the public affairs director at KPFK in Los Angeles, interviewed the three Soledad brothers inside San Quentin on August 17th. He spoke first with John Cluchet, and their conversation began with Mr. Cluchet describing his initial involvement with the legal system. Well, um, in the court system, really, I've been involved actually when I was about 12 years old. Well, you know, I lived in the Watts area then, you know, mostly in what they call the ghetto, so-called ghetto now. I know they had most rival gangs from different areas, and we was fighting from another school, our school, I was going to Jordan. It was junior high and high school then, and we were fighting another school in another area, Willowbrook. So I went to jail for a gang activity. They sent me to Nellis School for Boys. That was a youth authority. And then I stayed there for about two years, and I went to went home. Then I came back and went to Paso Robles School for Boys for a violation, just a straight pro violation. I didn't meet the standards that uh, they figured I should meet on the streets. Then I came back to jail again after that, after I'd gotten out for a burglary. That's the case that I'm in on now. Well, actually, it was supposed to have been there receiving stolen goods. I had bought a television set because I was working, making $177 a week. Uh, North American Aviation, I didn't need to steal anything, really, so I bought the television set. But uh, during this time that I'd been growing up, when Compton Police Station was mostly all-white station, I, you know, that kind of, I made a lot of enemies there because I had cases different, you know, little <laughs> uh, grievances with them. So uh, I was arrested on that bat, and the PD uh, talked me into pleading guilty since he said that burglary and uh, receiving stolen goods was mostly the same thing, and most I'd get out of this county jail sentence. And that's when I came uh, here in jail now. And that's where you ended up at some of that. That's how I ended up in Soledad Prison. What year was that? Uh, 1966, October. And you were told by the public defender that if you plead guilty, you get some kind of jail time somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 to 60 days? Yeah, since I was working and doing fairly well on the streets, you know, he was going to shoot for probation for me, but I wound up coming to the penitentiary since the judge said that I'd uh, been in trouble with the law ever since I was a youngster. What happened to you after you got to Soledad? Well, I got to Soledad, and then, uh, I don't know, I was kind of in search for myself, and I joined the Muslim group, and I uh, found out that this uh, establishment didn't like this too much. At this time, it wasn't recognized as a religion in, within the penal system. So uh, one day when we were having services, I was locked up for about 60 days for an illegal group in which at this time they only allowed four blacks in a group at a time, at one time. And uh, so after that, I got out of the hole for that. They sent me to Tehaspe. I took a trade there, you know, air conditioning, refrigeration, sheet metal, and finished my high school education, started taking college correspondence courses. But uh, they started sending the narco people there from the different you know, narco institutions, so they sent me back to Soledad. When I got back there, I started taking different trade. I completed other trades in the school.
cool, so I just got off in the meat cutting, vocational meat cutting, which is butcher shop, worked for the institution, and uh, you know, kept my record pretty clean. I hadn't had but about, I had five disciplinary action write-ups during the time I'd been in the institution. Um, so the parole board seemed fit to give me a date, and I was supposed to go home on April the 20th, 1970, until uh, this other deal came up. I understand that while you were a meat cutter and that you learned certain things about the way the prison uses its products. Yeah. Can you elaborate well, on that? Uh, <laughs> well, the meat, well, most of the institution, uh, the meats and things, well, the choice meats cut to the meat. They go to the staff or wherever they go. They had little different houses, outhouses that they call. I don't know if that was to the people's houses or <laughs> where it was. We never saw it. Was, most of that was like I worked on the grind and they grind most of the meat up for the institution, which is 40%, uh, maybe I should say 60% 60, 60 bread, and the rest of it meat to stretch it out. So, uh, you know, most of the choice products, the institution never sees them. steaks and stuff. They might get steaks every three or four months or something like that, but most of them is sausage and hamburger meat, which is mostly consists of bread. At one point, one of the major complaints about the conditions at Soledad was concerning the, the food services there, that an allegation was made to the effect that there was uh, up to uh, glass objects chopped up in some of the food there. Well, this uh, is in the O-wing section, and I don't know about X-wing because I haven't been in there since 66. No wing section, they had a lot of trouble with the racial hostilities that, you know, involved from Mostly the staff, they keep these things going like this to keep, you know, the pressure off the main problems that are in the institution. Uh, I guess that's what you call it, divide and conquer rules. And, uh, what glass and whatever you call it, I don't know all the different <laughs> medical terms or tests. <laughs> shit has been thrown in different inmates. It happened to me a couple of times while I was down there, too. I don't know. Well, you know, it's, it's just the staff, you know, they. Well, there's so much favoritism shown on one end, like when a black says something about it, then a white inmate or a Mexican inmate will call him a snitch or something like that. And then that's how all the conflict mostly starts. But, uh, like, I had spoken to an officer, and I asked him, uh, you know, if he uh, segregated, I mean, not segregated, integrated uh, the exercise and stuff, this wouldn't be going on so much. Well, he told me, well, he just works here, and uh, he can't do anything about it, different things like that. I understand you're quite an accomplished artist. I've seen some of your, your uh, sculptures and there are prizes on all of them. When did you first get involved in working with sculpture? Well, uh, that comes from uh, being in jail mostly, you know, just something as a pastime. I just mostly started out doing <laughs> uh, nude pictures, you know, just like anybody who's young in jail. And, uh, you know, uh, nudity excited me. So uh, just started out just from that. I mostly do just portraits of faces and stuff like that when I have the time or the equipment. What do you think about the prison system? And what do you think about justice as a whole? <laughs> uh, I don't think about it because <laughs> actually it's all a forest. Uh, it's not saying nothing. This whole rehabilitation thing is a lie because I've had trades where actually I've read books and known more about the trades than my trade instructors. and. Uh, it's not, it's not what people are paying their money for, what they, people really think that uh, 
the children or husbands or sons or whatever are really learning. When they saying they learn, they learned on their own. And uh, they say it's the whole system is to make a man out of you, but the, at the first show of manhood, uh, there's a lot of repercussions on you, and uh, they're really trying to make vegetables out of you the whole time. So the idea, you think, is basically to break somebody? The whole idea is to break you. I was just down some of that on Saturday. I was, uh, we went on a tour of uh, the Correctional Industries, which in the program we pointed out that uh, Correctional Industries makes certain amount of money, but makes goods and services that they claim they, they sell to uh, state support agencies, the tax support agencies. Well, well, that's the whole thing. Actually, convicts, all of them, even on the trades or whatever, they work for the institution two cents an hour. I don't know if they told you that or not. Well, it's all the time clock there. Uh-huh. The yeah, time, time clock. Well, they make two cents an hour. <laughs> and uh, for the stuff that they make, they, I don't know how many thousands or million dollars that they make, all this stuff that convicts making within the institution, but they pay them. Some of them, uh, they have to work, I guess, 90 days or something before they start making two cents an hour. I don't know. I never did none of that because I, you know, I worked somewhere where I could steal and make money <laughs> for myself and within the institution. That's what most people try. Is to that do. one of the reasons why they could possibly label you a troublemaker at one point? Yes, because uh, you know, well, they call us packers. Uh, you know, I've gotten right up to that too. With stealing meat and selling it to the cooks, where they could sell sandwiches to the other inmates. You know, because. When you go in there to eat, they have a rats in the mouth for you to eat. And most of them, they be hungry. If they work all day, you know, a man work out eight hours. He come in, they give him a piece of hamburger meat, some salad, and a scoop of potatoes. Uh, a child can eat that much, you know. Well, well, why do you think you've been locked up so long? Well, they told me when I went before the board a couple of times, the reason I'd been locked up was because I had an aggressive background. And, uh, always wanted to do things like I wanted to do them and not like they were supposed to be done. And we've had, you know, different arguments and within the board. The people in the board, they're, they're men and just like anybody else, and they become emotional and you try to argue with them and tell them your point of view of things and uh, they don't want to hear this. They want everything done more or less the way they want it done. Like I said, they try to make vegetables out of it. It's not the whole thing. They're trying to make you a man. I came to jail a man. And I'd uh, rather stay in jail the rest of my life than be a man to go on the streets and be a punk for one day. How the correctional officers or guards at prisons, especially at Soledad? Well, I never had that much contact with them, actually. That was more or less the reason that um, I was scheduled to go home. I tried to you know, get a job where I wouldn't have that much contact with them. And in the butcher shop, the man there, he's a free man. You know, he, just comes in and teaches the trade. But uh, I've seen, you know, some of them, they are pretty uh, <laughs> shitty, <laughs> you know. And a lot of the brothers, you know, I, I used to get emotional when I see a lot of them because this is playing. A lot of the black officers there, they're uh, more or less suppressed themselves. You know, they see things that go on, but they can't say anything because they work for the establishment. And uh, like I know one officer in particular, Officer Thomas, they call him Iron Jaw. He tried to treat everybody equal, more or less. And uh, when he like he sees something that one inmate does or another inmate does, and uh, he see a white guard that will let this inmate slide, the same thing a black inmate may have done, and uh, or even less. 
and they'll lock him up. So Iron Jaw would say something about it, and somebody would go to one of the other officers would go to the captain, Captain Moody, and uh, he would come and get on the man's back, you know. So after a little while, they get kind of indoctrinated where they just sit back, and whatever happens, they don't say anything. So how, would, how does Captain Moody investigate things? Well, he's a pressure person. He puts a lot of pressure on him. I, I had an antidote with him one time about a natural cone because they didn't allow a natural cones in the institution because uh, they said that they were weapons. And uh, I was coming out, but they let Macomb come to the property, or people sent it to me, for my father's a barber, and uh, I was coming out the kitchen one day and the, another guard snatched it and threw it on the floor and I go to pick it up and the guard pushes me because he's not supposed to put his hands on me in the first place. Captain Moody runs over there and asks me, did you hit that officer? Did you push him? And he tries to provoke the other goon squad. That's the, the men like the squad. Yeah, the uh, Gestapo squad. That's what's his better name. These are men that beat people to death, like they would pick hounds and uh, gas them or different things like that. And uh, which at the time, and now I'm back to mention this to At the time, uh, I was in Soledad in the year of 1969. Nine black inmates had died in that time there. And like the Gestapo, uh, the goon squad, like they beat an inmate to death in the hole and gassed him and then went until he passed out and then they beat the inmate to death. And this Dr. Boone, I don't know if it's illegal or not, but he lied on the medical thing and said that the inmate died of a heart attack. This is a 22-year-old inmate that was in perfectly physical condition when he went down there. And uh, so they tell these people's people that, and they don't check into these things. I don't think the people on the streets are concerned enough about their relatives and people in independent institutions. I know, like, uh, more or less, like my mother used to be the same way, where, you know, she figured that she didn't got herself into it, she get herself out until she actually found out what would be going on in these institutions. It's not as easy to get out as it is to get in. But uh, Captain Moody, back to him, I don't know. He's uh, he's a sick man, really. He, uh, I don't know. I can't really say anything about him without custody violence. So I don't want to inspire him too much more. more. You, you, your mother related to me that one day when she came to visit you after the, uh, you, you were being investigated concerning the death of John Mills, that when she, you came out in the visiting room that your uh, hands were blue and you looked very cold and you had all Yeah, well... Why was that? Because uh, it's cold down in the hole. Were you in the strip cells or the client cells, or were you in a regular? I was in a regular cell on the Max Road at this time. I was waiting. Uh, I hadn't been told that I was being charged with any crime. I was told I was in there for an investigation. They don't give you any shoes or anything down there. It's pretty cold. It was in the winter time in January, and most a lot of the windows were broke out, and so you, know, you only get two blankets. So they had you know chained up and stuff. I didn't have any socks or shoes on when I came down there, so. And my fingernails and toes and stuff, they were just pale. Can you tell us what happened on January 13th in which uh, O.G. Miller, uh, correctional officer at Soledad, shot and killed three black Well, at this time, I was waiting to go on a parole release plan down at Chino, and I, so I worked outside the gates at the officers' homes and things like this, and the, I was a yard boy. I was, and, uh, so no, me and another brother, Slim, we was just standing out and he was trimming some trees and I heard the shots. So we, did, we thought the shots were an X-wing. So when we came in the gate, we had to come back inside the institution 
Another brother told me that, uh, that man, they just shot and killed Jug down in the hole. And two other brothers that, you know, we didn't know they were down there because uh, it's completely isolated from the regular population. So I felt kind of bad about it. I didn't go back to work that end because me and Jug, we used to lift iron together. We were pretty tight, and he got shipped out on the Humbug anyway, but they had a race ride in Y-Wing, and Jug lived in E-Wing, which is about a block. You know, it's at the other end of the car. It's about a block if you want to, you know, consider it miles, you know, whatever. So I felt kind of bad about it. I didn't go back to work or nothing. I was, so I goes up to my cell, and I see a lot of I don't know who they were, pigs, I just call them pigs. They came because I could see the gun tower on the old wing yard from myself since myself was up over the roof. And they were just laughing and joking like it was all a big joke, and, you know, all of them. The guards? The guards and whoever, I guess these people were from the press or something. All of them were white. And uh, see, everybody knows, like I've been in the hole myself, and I know that everything is segregated down there. And, uh, it's just like, you know, if it was just a setup, that's what it is. That's actually what they do in the institutions a lot, to set people up. You know, like one inmate, they'll lie on one inmate to another inmate or have, you know, one of these snitches do it. And uh, that's how they get inmates killed. That's how they get inmates killed in the institution. So what happened on January 13th? Did you hear it from other inmates, what really went down? I heard everything from other inmates except for when uh, the associate warden, Mr. Black, came on, and uh, he tried to explain to us everything that had happened on that night, so it wouldn't be any grievances among the inmates as to what happened. What did happen then? Well, he told us that there was 16 inmates on the yard, and that these inmates had started to fighting each other and O.G. Miller to prevent black inmates from killing this white inmate, uh, Billy D. Harris, that uh, three black inmates were shot and killed. Did you hear any other story about what happened? Well, after I got to the hole uh, three days later for investigation of the John Mills incident, the inmates, the black inmates that were on the yard and the white inmates were down there and they discussed things kind of openly because there was a lot of hostility among them. And at this time, the grand jury had started coming to the institution to uh, interview them, I guess, some more or less, to see actually what had happened. But this time, you could see that it was going to be uh, impartial, well, a partial investigation because of... Uh, the, end, the white inmates were trying to cover up for the white guard because they had hostilities against the other black inmates. John, what, what has prison done to you? How do you feel about our society as a whole? And how do you feel, what recourse of action can you take in order to, uh, let's say, improve your condition? <laughs> That's a pretty heavy question right there. Well, uh, as far as prison is going, I've, you know, I've been pretty aware since, like I've told you, that I came to prison when I was pretty young. I could more or less see a lot of things that my friends, when I got on the streets that had never been to prison, couldn't see. And I lived in sort of a, 
guess you call it bourgeois atmosphere since I live in Compton, California. And people, a lot of people are way out, out there. And they used to think I was crazy when I tried to explain things to them on what was really happening, you know. But uh, I was kind of hoping when I uh, went home that a lot of this had been changed since, you know, a lot of people seemed to be coming aware of what was really going on. and. You know, not so much like I was like I was just a, like I said, a ghetto boy, and I moved into Compton because my people felt like this was a place to be, and be you know, live around white folks so they could pick up some of their ways. And me and my mother's had a lot of discussions and arguments about it because she still has a lot of them. And um, when we moved out there, mostly the blacks, you know, they could see that you weren't like them. So you know, more you know more or less how things were going. Like as well, he's out of watch. He's a little hoodlum and a tramp. But I never thought on levels like that because I've been around more and less all races growing up in the, in the institution. But uh, as far as society goes, I don't think too much about it because I, I see every day how people let establishment murder people in their homes and in prisons and in the streets. And, uh, you know, they just sit back and condone it or saying, well, he must have been bad or must have been doing something wrong or he wouldn't have gotten killed or whatever and uh, I don't know I, I I be pretty mad all the time I, I I've gotten to the point where I don't trust too many people because of different you know things like this and uh, I'm not a what do you call it, an introvert yeah well I'm <laughs> more or less on that level because of, I don't know I just met so many way out people and a lot of them I see that talk black and they don't really be thinking black, you know, be thinking about, you know, I see a lot of them talk revolution and they don't really be thinking revolution. You got to think it and live it to actually be a revolutionary. Or else you know, you're dead from the get. I don't admit Jonathan briefly. I've been knowing George for a long time since we've been in prison together, but uh, I think the brother's beautiful. And uh, I wish that I'd known that uh, he was going to do something like this for us because uh, I have five brothers of my own and I'd have had them there with him. You consider yourself a revolutionary? Uh, yes, I do. <laughs> I was a revolutionary before I even knew what the word was. Actually, I've always been a rebel. I just didn't have a cause. And uh, now that I know that what my cause is and where I stand, actually where I stand, you know, within this called the United States. <laughs> uh, I say, yes, I'm a revolutionary. That was John Cluche talking with David Stevens of KPFK. David Stevens spoke next with Fleeta Drumgo, who related his first encounter with law enforcement. Uh, it started when I was just started a long time ago. I mean, when I was about 13. Uh, I didn't have a beef and things to run away from home and I was sent to youth party at that time. And, uh, youth party sent me to, uh, I went to Tracy, stayed uh, in jail uh, three years at that time. It was just for a runaway. And uh, it, you know, so they have a Thing, man, if you, uh, you know, like if you stand up and try to, I mean, to project uh, black manhood, uh, they, um, 
uh, put you down as uh, being too aggressive, uh, uh, you know, because, you know, the prison system is saying uh, they try to, uh, you know, a more indoctrination of uh, what we already, black people have already been indoctrinated to, you see what I'm saying? And, uh, to these the officials here, they are, they are, I can't even describe them, they're just some hard cats, I mean, it's like, see, like, take a prisoners in Vietnam or something, you know, like, um, that's what they try to, you know, they're dealing with the most aggressive cats in the, in the state. So uh, they have to be extra aggressive, you know. They're very reactionary people, you know. And uh, so after you got into prison, behind this, uh, running away from home, and you spent three years at youth authority. What happened then? I was violated, you know. I went out. I was supposed to be going to go to school, but uh, school wouldn't accept me, you know. What school was that? Uh, when I got out, I was supposed to go to. Uh, I was going to try to go to uh, jail, you know. I was about 16, 17 at that time. I was going to try to go to jail, but uh, they wouldn't accept me because of my record, you know. Prison, I mean, being in, uh, you thought they wanted to send me to Reese, and uh, I seen that as just being another prison, you know. I mean, it's all, you know, all boys' schools, and I just left all boys. I didn't want to just go back to you know, something like that. I mean, it's, uh, you know, and I, so, uh, I was supposed to get a job. I went to different, uh, Derby League and all, you know, all that on Avalon. And, uh, I didn't get no job or anything. It gave me a runaround. You know, I kept getting run around from different places, different places. Sitting there calling me. You know how they go. So, uh, they never called me. So, uh, might not get a job. I was violated. How'd you violate? Oh, by just not having a job. Just not having a job. Right. Know. So what happened? They took, required you to get, go back into the system again? Right. You ever work on the conservation camps? No, I haven't. So, this last uh, offense, I think, or your first felony offense, is one that, uh, in front of a T television store? Right. And talking with both Mr. Silver and Mr. Uh, and Inez Williams, your mother, I've learned something about that case, especially about that uh, you were just standing outside of the store. Right. I never even entered the store. And uh, I was outside, uh, you know, later on, about the next day, uh, his, his brother, uh, Willard Adams, he got shot. With me being with him, you know, he tried to put me in the case, you know. So uh, after that, uh, it's talking about, I mean, they just gave me a record, man. They just uh, gave me an uh, A number. And uh, I've been in jail ever since, you know. That's been some four, four years ago. Yeah. Reading through the sentencing, uh, trial, reading through the sentencing record, 
I notice that although the DA, or not DA, public defender, advised you to plead guilty, and your mother yeah. informs me that with the understanding that you'd serve county jail time.